0: In just a few years, human spaceflight has transformed. As billionaire-backed commercial space has helped usher in a new era with company-owned spacecraft now carrying not only government astronauts, but private citizens to space. And none more so than Elon Musk's
1: SpaceX. We have spent about $350 billion on human spaceflight and launched around 350 astronauts. So that's about a billion of your tax dollars on astronauts. We are now paying SpaceX 50 million an astronaut. I just don't see what's to be so critical about that.
0: On the heels of the return of the private Axiom space astronauts to Earth, and as NASA prepares to launch another crewed mission to the International Space Station, both via SpaceX, I spoke with a woman who helped spearhead the commercial crew program that's made it all possible. Lori Garver, the former deputy administrator of NASA, about this new space age, Senator Bernie Sanders, even the agency's fraught mega-moon rocket. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space.
1: Dragon SpaceX, we see splashdown and mains cut.
0: We can turn Axiom Space's AX-1 mission splashed down off the Florida coast Monday, completing the first all-private mission to the International Space Station. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson telling me recently, commercial companies are helping to make spaceflight more economical. It's gotten cheaper to go to and from orbit. The commercial industry is realizing that there are businesses to be established in space, and that is happening as we speak. Next up, NASA's Crew-4 mission, which will launch three NASA astronauts and one European Space Agency astronaut to the ISS as soon as Wednesday, with SpaceX under commercial crew. The commercial crew program is a public-private partnership that includes both SpaceX with its Dragon capsule and Boeing with its still-under-development Starliner to taxi people to and from low-Earth orbit. It's enabled the U.S. to end reliance on Russia for rides to space— and in the case of SpaceX, translated to additional business carrying out private missions. In many ways, Commercial Crew is the brainchild of former NASA Deputy Administrator Lori Garver, who is now the CEO of Earthrise Alliance and a co-founder of the Brooke Owens Fellowship.
1: I guess we always assumed we'd get here. I certainly assumed we'd get here. It also seemed to take longer than... I initially thought there's a whole bunch of people who have been working toward this for decades. And of course, it wouldn't really be happening without Elon Musk and SpaceX in the way it is now. So all credit to to them. But for those of us who've been working on the policy side and really trying to tread this ground for decades, it went slow and now it's going fast. And that's really fun.
0: It is pretty interesting to see how quickly SpaceX has been able to ratchet that launch cadence um, because this is the fourth operational um, mission under commercial crew. But if you include the demo two flight test, it's actually five. And then if you include axiom and you include inspiration 4 we're talking about seven human space flights in what a year, Uh, two years, just under two years with a pandemic, no less. Uh, how does it speak to SpaceX, which is a company that you engaged for this program uh, once they were contracted and, and you, you did work very closely with?
1: Yeah, it, it's it's impossible to have this future that we're in now without SpaceX. I mean, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic doing suborbital flights is wonderful and also something that will contribute more over the longer term. But without SpaceX launching astronauts, Obviously, Boeing hasn't gotten there yet. We wanted a competition, and thankfully, SpaceX was one of the competitors because we really have, I think, gone well beyond what I would have thought they could do in the first two years. I mean, this is they are making it look easy. We all know that it is not. Um, and the fact that NASA actually has transitioned so quickly is really positive
0: too. Hmm. Do you think Boeing actually gets operational this year or gets humans on board its own Starliner capsule this year?
1: I hope so. I really hope Boeing gets astronauts um, to space station this year and then starts being operational next year. We we need a competition. You know, we didn't, I know a lot of people think I had my thumb on the scale for SpaceX, but that's not really true. I really, truly thought that the time had come for the launching and transportation of astronauts to be done by the private sector. And we tried to do this transition decades earlier. In the 1990s, Dan Golden started with X-33, and Lockheed Martin was planning to do this. McDonnell Douglas was planning to do this. There were companies trying to privatize the space shuttle. But Until Elon, no one really could get the cost through at least initially now reusability to be within a range where it is happening regularly.
0: That's interesting. So the fact that it was attempted earlier but didn't work out earlier um, spoke to the fact that it would have been more expensive for the private sector to do it and to own the hardware.
1: Well, the market was really what drove the investment in the 1990s. People thought the communication satellites were going to, you know, have huge numbers of satellite constellations to launch. And Dan Golden knew. We all knew the space shuttle would retire. Um, certainly after the first Challenger accident, people knew that there were significant fundamental flaws to the program. And following up the space shuttle with the next human space transportation capability was in the 1990s going to be done by the private sector. It was a partnership arrangement. And because of the thought to be great commercial satellite market out there, Lockheed, Boeing, and McDonnell Douglas all bid to be in a partner arrangement where they paid hundreds of millions of dollars of their own money to match NASA and to do a fully reusable Single yes. stage rocket, and it just was too high of a technical leap. It had problems technically. It wasn't exactly clear, you know, NASA wasn't going to pay for those problems. It had to be Lockheed at that point. They had won. This was phase two of the program. But even more importantly, the dot com bubble burst, and it became clear the constellation of communication satellites wasn't going to exist for a while. So their market dried up and they, um, I think Lockheed's experience was, wow, we put out around $350 million to do this. And they're going to be a lot more cautious before they enter that kind of arrangement again. Um, Boeing managed to convince their senior leaders to compete this time, but I'm sure they've questioned that given how long it's taken and how expensive that program will be for the company.
0: Mm, It's it's fascinating when you go back and look at that not too far in the past history. And of course, we know United Launch Alliance was basically born out of that collapse too, um, just because you did see some of these different companies and different rocket companies and satellite companies um, close their doors uh, or consolidate. Uh, so, So talk to me then about how it came to be with Commercial Crew. You've got this new book coming out in June, Escaping Gravity, My Quest to Transform NASA, And launch a new space age. You collaborated, at least to a certain extent, with one of my colleagues here at CNBC, Michael Sheets, on this project. It gives us the origin story of how this type of public-private partnership was revisited.
1: Sure. Um, I really did learn it in the 1990s when I was at NASA from Dan Golden and the great lawyers and staff at NASA who recognized that future programs in human spaceflight would be run as partnerships. And so I was a volunteer advisor on presidential campaigns for Senator Kerry in 2004 and then Senator Clinton in 2008. And when she lost in the primary, Senator Obama, then president elect asked me to lead his transition team. So here we are, it's 2008, the space shuttle is going to retire in 2010. Your job as the transition team is to ask a lot of questions of the agency and make recommendations and give options to the incoming administration. And we found out shuttle retirement was imminent. We couldn't really restart the program. We could add two flights, which we did to complete the space station, get AMS up and so forth, because we knew it would be a while until we were at least able to go to the space station with astronauts launched from the United States for quite a while. The program of record to replace the shuttle was called Constellation, and the administration, the Bush administration, had begun that a few years before, but progress was not going well. It was envisioned to be a fully government-owned and operated system, and since my experience was, wow, that's not really something the government is best suited for, and NASA shouldn't be wasting their money on the transportation part, um, we already had a couple programs to look to to show us that we could count on the private sector, the main one being COTS, which was started by the Bush administration, and it was to launch cargo through a partnership arrangement with a competition. And at the time, Kistler Aerospace and SpaceX One, Kissler missed some of their financial milestones, so Orbital Sciences was able to on-ramp now Northrop Grumman. And those two providers of cargo had not yet provided cargo in 2008 and nine, but we put forward a recommendation and an option that instead of going with Constellation, we could put a competition together for private sector to launch astronauts, and the Obama administration, the president himself, selected that option, and in his first full budget request, um, put that proposal out there. It was not popular. It was, of course, deemed as competitive to these billion-dollar contracts that the private sector mm-hmm. always had. So it got it got rather nasty for a little while, but um, we were able to get some Early funding, Congress, Congress didn't support it very strongly at first, but over time they have. And now I think people really recognize it was the right way to go for astronaut transportation.
0: Mm. It's always funny to me when these are the conversations that get had, especially where government contracting is concerned, because and 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 maybe this wasn't so much the case, and people had reason to be skeptical before, say a SpaceX but to enlist the private sector to carry some of the risk could only at least in in my mind potentially lower the bill for the taxpayer.
1: Yeah, I really don't understand why this is hard for some people to see. I mean, this is our this is is very ironic given that our space program was sort of founded in the Cold War to show that democracy and capitalism is the best way to advance a <laughs> society and I really believe that. And I don't think this should have been nearly as controversial as it was. It's related to the overall issue of the relentless momentum of the status quo. So we have these programs that get funded in the government. And of course, there's no incentive of those congressmen, companies, people who are working on those programs at NASA to want to change. And so it's really a lot of just the entrenched traditional way of operating, a system that this threatened. And so that was why it became controversial. But on its face, logically, of course, let's see. We have spent about $350 billion on human spaceflight and launched around 350 astronauts. So that's about a billion of your tax dollars an astronaut. Wow. We are now paying SpaceX 50 million an astronaut. You know, that's that's money. That
0: puts it in perspective when people talk about how, oh, $55 million to ride to space, so a billionaire joyride, that kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it?
1: Well, and of course, a billionaire joyride is zero to the taxpayer. So, uh, you know, we get asked this all the time, and I'm not an apologist for Jeff and Elon and Sir Richard Branson, but We have policies in this country that allow you to amass billions and they are following laws and doing this with their money, which has definitely helped our economy. Lowering the cost of space transportation has helped us win back all kinds of market share for, you know, non-astronaut flights for sure. And the fact that our tax dollars aren't going into launching these people who are paying their own money to go to low earth orbit or to orbit in the case of Inspiration 4 and the recent uh, mission to space station. I just don't see what's to be so critical about that. It it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but but I understand people are concerned that billionaires are gonna be in charge. And I guess I would say from having worked at NASA a couple of times, that, that is not a big concern. They want the government's support. They want the government's um, contracts. And I think NASA very much in human spaceflight is going to be leading this for a while.
0: Mm. Yeah, it, it's 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 interesting to have this conversation when I think about the op-ed from Senator Bernie Sanders uh, over the weekend where he's basically saying that uh, NASA has become the ATM for, for billionaires. Um, but... I know,
1: and I talk about this in the book and I say, you know, <laughs> Politicians on both sides of the aisle get it wrong, because that's not really the concern. I mean, are you if if we're Bernie, I'm a big fan of lots of his policies. And I feel like he this he hasn't been well enough educated on the specifics of this program. I don't think he would rather the country pay a billion dollars per astronaut than 50 million. And it's not Lining the company's pockets or the billionaires' pockets, they've spent more money, um, at least to date, than they've certainly raised. I'm I'm fairly sure that's true with with SpaceX. I, it's definitely true with Blue.
0: Mm. It, it's interesting because I feel like there's a real life, real time case study kind of playing out. And so whether it is SpaceX with Starship or even you could say you know these these. Um, uh, launch vehicles um, through commercial crew, versus SLS, which is a Boeing-made rocket, but it's owned and operated by NASA and has yet to get off the launch pad. We're hoping soon this summer as it gets wheeled back for more repairs um, and maybe another wet dress rehearsal. But to your point, it's sort of showing in real time, differences between these two business models—one that existed for a long time and many decades—and were sort of seen as, I guess, safe—and this newer, more public-private partnership—and how that's yielding results and perhaps more quickly.
1: Right. the The difficulty is, it's a nuanced um, argument, and the private sector <laughs> has been involved in the begin- since the beginning of NASA. You know, they've been building uh, NASA rockets and lunar landers since, since the agency's founding. Um, we really have not seen a lot of progress in human spaceflight since Apollo, largely because of that system. Because when we get a, a mission started like the space shuttle, so it was supposed to cost around $6 billion to develop, cost closer to 30, 60, depending on how you count. We've spent over 150 billion on that program. Space station was supposed to cost $8 billion to develop. It cost several times that. And now we've spent over 150 billion on it over time. The question is, how do you start something new when companies who are getting all that money don't want to let go of it? So there's a disincentive to do something new. And what I didn't foresee, and I don't think any of us really could foresee, because we didn't have people as wealthy as Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk uh, in the 1990s, was that it took an outside entity to come in and drive those prices down, because they didn't have current interests to hold on to. And it's just the incentives. It's just business. It's not um, a judgment that one company is better than the other. They have existing contracts. So why would they want to put their own money in to replace something where they're already on the gravy train? And, you know, that's that's something that NASA itself struggles with because we have employees at NASA who love working with these contractors. They've worked with them forever. It's a seamless, badgeless relationship. And at NASA, we're very proud of that. But that's not really what taxpayer dollars should be spent doing. They should be maximized for efficiency and growing markets and helping our economy.
0: So what do you think of SLS? We worked very hard
1: to, in the beginning of the Obama administration, have transportation um, to space be done by the private sector and the government just purchasing launches as a service, the way we have been doing for satellites, the way we are doing now for space station cargo and crew. A combination of existing contractors who had tens of billions of dollars of contracts, the members of Congress whose districts those companies and therefore workforce were in, and the NASA team that was working on these programs, they didn't want to give it up. They just did not want to see themselves not be leading this um, effort of a of the next big rocket. And even though SpaceX said they were going to be working on a big rocket without our tax dollars, eventually both Elon and Jeff said if we had put in a program similar to what we did for commercial crew and cargo for heavy lift, we could, of course, as a nation, gotten that capability without spending the again, depending on how you count it, $20 billion on SLS and another 20 or so on Orion. I just, we weren't in favor of doing it this way and our hand was forced by Congress. They legislated that we needed to have our own owned and operated government rocket and they dictated a whole bunch of things, um, most of which have not come to pass because they, just weren't possible. I said at the time, you can legislate that the sky is purple, but that does not make it so. Um, I, that was not a popular position when SLS was announced the space community was thrilled to have more contracts in, in in general. and I felt terrible that we were starting another big rocket and human spaceflight program that was going to take so much money is going to take from the more valuable things that we should be doing at NASA, which are, you know, what do we do that's unique with the perspective of space, either low Earth orbit or beyond to the moon and Mars. And we just keep being fixated on the rocket. And we've spent so much money now. It has taken so long. This rocket was pitched to us by industry, is going to be able to fly by 2016, then 2017, 2018, 19, 20, 21, 22. That's, that's um, I know something that people say the private sector-led programs also slip, but they're not spending three to four billion tax dollars a year. This is the dilemma. You're getting companies who are making that money every year, whether they launch or not. So the incentive is just keep getting it for a longer period of time.
0: Yeah, and of course, SLS is not reusable. And depending on who you speak to, Um, You're talking about a launch cost that could be something like $3 billion per launch over the next several launches for this Artemis program, although I think the NASA Administrator Bill Nelson would probably push back on that number. Um, Nonetheless, I I do wonder if you think it's sort of, in some ways, SLS and Orion are end of an era, because we are seeing NASA, and now even the Defense Department too, um, engage in more of these public-private partnerships. Whether it is future commercial space stations or its lunar landers as part of Artemis, uh, or even some of the satellite related contracting that's happening.
1: Yeah, I do think this is, in a way, the end of an era more for SLS, because to mm. me, space transportation that has other potential customers, whether they be individuals or payloads like satellites, really can be done by the private sector i'm not sure what the commercial market is for a lot of lunar activity or activity on mars initially so then you're really just talking about a cost plus versus a fixed cost contract Hmm. and the only reason we're really able to do fixed price contracts for like the lunar lander are because we have individuals like elon and jeff willing to risk their own private capital. Most publicly owned companies aren't going to say to their shareholders, oh, we just believe there's going to be all kinds of customers on the moon. You know, it's the launch market to low Earth orbit, especially was a very robust market. And I had zero hesitation about pitching it as something the private sector could take over. I'm not as convinced about deep space soon. Um, And I think we are very lucky to have the individuals we do now investing in these programs because it it helps reach their personal and corporate visions. Without that, I'm not sure we wouldn't be back to cost plus contracting like SLS Orion for a longer period of time. And we'll have to see how that goes.
0: So, so Mars is a commercial prospect, a little questionable. Yeah, I mean, I
1: I don't I don't know what the business case is for it. I fully am willing to believe that a multi-generational vision is important and that starting it is important. And if you are as wealthy as these couple of individuals are and you want to do that, I don't find a lot of reasons to complain about that.
0: Fair enough. I, I remember sitting down with Gwen Shotwell for an interview a couple of years ago and she point blank said, Mars is a fixer upper planet. Um, <laughs> so I always think about that. Yeah. well, saying. Fixer uppers, Who who's going to pay for it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, to has a long-term vision of of certainly sending people to Mars. Their intention would most likely be to do that in coordination, cooperation with other countries. And the private sector will undoubtedly, as it has for everything else, build these vehicles. If there are companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin that can do that for a more reasonable uh, price, the cost of the government will be greatly reduced. The biggest reason we really haven't gone back to the moon or onto Mars is because we haven't lowered the cost of
0: it. Hmm. Hmm. So, So given the fact that you're now operating in the private sector um, and you have your thumb on the pulse of so many aspects of this growing space economy. I mean, what, what are the areas that you're most excited about right now? Well, space
1: to me is like um, the ocean was back when we first started being able to traverse it or the early aviation and jet age. We cannot predict what it will bring, right? We know we get unique amount of science, there is a lot of important economic and national security activity that takes place in low earth orbit, and anything that I think advances humanity's ability to survive on this planet um, in a way that is, you know, less harmful to future generations, all the better. So there's all kinds of technologies that I support that help us measure what's happening here, the interactions between the atmosphere, the land, ice, and the oceans. You can really only learn about that from space holistically. A huge percentage of what we know about what's happening with our climate, we learn from space. So I'm very bullish on those types of satellite systems. Obviously the big thing we learned when we went to space was that we're in this together. I think Bill Anders who took the Earthrise famous photograph said, we went all this way to the moon and the most important thing we learned was about Earth.
0: Mm.
1: We, we take that for granted, but the new technologies are allowing us to do even more and obviously measuring emissions of methane and other greenhouse gases so that we can help manage that better will be really another game changer. I'm also pretty excited about point-to-point transportation. These suborbital vehicles, as well as Starship, should it become operational, can get you to anywhere on the planet in 90 minutes. And for the segment of the population that is trading off their 20-hour flight, um, compared to that, I think there's a market there. I am still hopeful that commercial orbital habitats and laboratories will become uniquely important for either pharmaceutical manufacturing. You know, there's a lot of types of physics that when you remove gravity, we are still from the space station figuring out how that could impact all kinds of things that we do that could benefit from that environment. And I also think that things like solar power satellites, we can potentially look to space to help solve, again, more of our our problems here on Earth. And finally, I do agree with Elon and Jeff that you don't really need to think about it very hard to realize that as a single planet species, we are at greater risk of extinction. Um, I personally believe We ought to be really, really focused on spending, um, uh, Elon has said this too, the largest amount of our investment on how we can help humanity today on this planet, and a small percentage of that going to drive technologies and innovations that are going to allow us to expand beyond ultimately, I think is um, important and worthwhile.
0: Mm. And then of course, getting the, the next generations involved and engaged and excited about all this work, which seems to be afoot. Um, it seems to be afoot. It's, it's, it, I, I see it even with my own kids who, are, who I'm forced to sit down and watch launches, for example. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it does seem like a switch has flipped and you're seeing more young entrepreneurs and more people who actually are, are, wanna get into this field.
1: Yeah, no, my kids are older than yours and of course did not have a choice either about being <laughs> in, in space. Neither of them went into it as a as a career, but I think that's the point is that sort of like the oceans and the atmosphere, more and more industries involve space, and that's of greater interest to a broader segment of the population than initially when it really was just your steely-eyed missile man. Mm.
0: Okay, so as we wrap this up, some details about Escaping Gravity, when it's going to be available, where people can find it, and what they can expect when they open the book.
1: Sure. Well, Escaping Gravity was uh, something I have started thinking about since I left NASA, being deputy of NASA several years ago, and I reached out to Michael Sheets to help get me current and he and I collaborated for more than a year, talking every week. COVID kept us from being able to really co author it. But Escaping Gravity talks about how we got here basically, from the earliest times when people were really starting to invest in private commercial spaceflight um, up through what's happening today. It is a memoir. So it is. My story, and that is somewhat unique as a female non astronaut, non engineer. I take a more holistic approach to space. Um, it is going to be released on June 21st, both um, audiobook as well as every other format you would want. And it is available on every platform and bookstore that you you would like. And it has a foreword by um, Walter Isaacson, where he talks about technology and how typically innovation comes when both government and the private sector are involved. And he sees space as sort of an outgrowth of that, which I thought was um, a a correct take on it.
0: Mm. Um, It's certainly something we've touched on quite a bit here. Uh, Well, congratulations on the book. And Lori, thanks so much for joining me today. Really appreciate the time and the insights uh, on all of these different key programs and sort of how it's brought us to this special moment uh, where the space economy is concerned. Lori Garver.
1: Thank you, Morgan. Nice to talk to you.
0: That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by searching Manifest Space wherever you get your podcasts and by following the Squawk on the Street podcast for more on the space race, be sure to watch Squawk on the Street on CNBC. I'm. Fred. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear
1: small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery.